Welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. What we wanted to talk to you about today is to share a piece of work that Simon's been doing in his local real-life hospital about opiate overdose and how we manage that. One of the key things that we try and do is to share different pieces of work between the different things that we're doing. So that includes in our normal hospitals, on the blog site, on the podcast, whether it's in lectures and other teaching sessions. And this seemed like a really valuable topic to talk about. So Simon, what was it that made you have to think about opiate overdose in your hospital in particular? Well, I think like many people, we work in a fairly metropolitan area. We're in a large ED in a big city. And unfortunately, that does mean that we see a lot of people with drug and alcohol problems. And one of those drug problems that we see not infrequently are people who come to the emergency department having taken too many opiates, either accidentally or on purpose. So we see our drug addicts who've injected heroin or overused methadone. We see elderly patients who've overdosed on their codeine tablets given to them by their general practitioner or by the emergency department itself. And we also see people who've taken deliberate overdoses to try and harm themselves. And they may also include opiate medications. Now, I always thought this was pretty straightforward. We've got a drug. People have taken it in overdose. We worked out that they've got too much in their body and we give them an antidote. So how are we going to spread this out into a podcast where we're going to tell people something different? Well, I think I've changed over the years. If we go back, gosh, it's 20 years, 20 years since I started in emergency medicine, our approach was patient would come in, we would make a diagnosis of opiate overdose, and we can talk about what how we do that, how we decide that somebody may have taken opiates. And then we would give them industrial doses of naloxone. Naloxone is an opiate antagonist. It We would give a huge dose intramuscularly, we would give a huge dose intravascularly. The patient would then wake up, often thank us really nicely for waking them up, not, go immediately into withdrawal, abscond from the department, and no more would be heard of them. And most of the time that was okay, but, and we had many cases, I've got to say, there are problems with that approach. Firstly, it can cause quite significant cardiovascular effects. So a patient may be very, very obtunded. And if you suddenly reverse them, you can run into difficult problems or you can reveal problems that are not apparent before you give them naloxone. And secondly, naloxone is quite a short acting drug. And if somebody's taken a long acting opiate, they'll be out the department in cold turkey, in withdrawal, running off to get their next fix. The naloxone wears off, the opiates come back. And unfortunately, if they've taken something like methadone, those patients can die. And that's not good. Okay, so you've persuaded me. Let's keep going with this. We can easily find some things to talk about here that I think I'm going to find interesting and I think our listeners will find interesting too. So let's go back to the beginning. We're talking about patients who've come in having taken too much of an opiate medication. What do you think the key things are to help us recognise these patients? Because obviously patients coming in in coma with reduced GCS, they could have taken anything. What is it that's going to point us in the direction of opiates? And then we can go on and think about how we're going to treat that. Well, it's one of my favourite words. You know, I like favourite words and things like that. But a long time ago, you know what a syndrome is, don't you? Syndrome is a collection of signs and symptoms which relate to a disease. Are you familiar with toxidromes? I'm assuming it's a set of signs and symptoms that link to a particular toxic ingestion. Yeah, and I know you know this, but I quite like the word toxidrome. There are many medications out there which, if taken in overdose, do produce characteristics and signs and symptoms. And opiates are one of those. So what do we see? We see a patient who has a depressed level of consciousness. We see a patient who's got a depressed respiratory rate. We see meiosis, so the pupils are very small, they're unresponsive. And in high levels of opiate overdose, they may well have cardiovascular effects as well. So all of those things together would give you a clue 
in an obtunded patient that they've taken too many opiates. Although there are other causes for patients presenting in that way. We get the classical picture of this drugged up young man who comes in with track marks on his arm and he's got tiny little pupils and he's not breathing much. And that's relatively straightforward, I guess. But it's not always going to be that straightforward. Some people take more than one medication if they're taking an overdose. They may decide that they're going to take some heroin and let's just have some crack cocaine with it at the same time. How do we go about teasing those different people out from this set of patients? Yeah, it's like many things in medicine. If it's really obvious, it's actually quite easy. So your patient you described, pretty obvious what's going on. But there are other patients who you may you, know, you may miss really. So there's people who've taken deliberate overdoses. So people may take a deliberate overdose and self-harm, of which opiates may be a component. So classic one we might see is people who've taken combined paracetamol and codeine preparations. So they've taken a large number of those and they come in a bit sleepy. And actually their obtundedness is to do with the large amount of opiates they've taken in conjunction with the paracetamol. I'm sure you've seen that as well. And there's another group which you you feel pretty good when you pick them up, actually. It's a nice diagnosis. And that's the elderly patients who may not metabolize their opiates very well, who are taking prescription medicines. And they've either taken too much accidentally or they're particularly sensitive to it. And you do see occasionally these old ears who come in as a possible stroke or a collapse or something like that. And actually you look at them and you think, well, you're not breathing very much. You've got tiny little pupils and let's just have a quick look at your medication. Ah, and these are patients who are quite easy to miss as opiate overdoses. So they're relatively easy to recognise. And so we can probably move on to talk about the assessment. One thing I just want to add in, which I think I was taught a few years ago, was always to consider the patient who comes in in a single vehicle RTC, who's the driver of a car, who's been involved with no other cars whatsoever, and just a stationary object. Always think about that person. Why was it they drove into a tree? And consider that they may have taken a concurrent overdose at the same time, sometimes paracetamol, sometimes other things. But it was something I was taught a few years ago, and I think it's a valuable thing to consider in amongst all the other trauma stuff. Just single person driving a car into a tree. So we've got these patients, we've got an idea. How are we going to set about in the recess room with our first assessment of looking at them? Okay, so I think you can still follow the ABC protocol. So if they don't have an airway, manage the airway. If they're not breathing at all, then you obviously have to manage their breathing and their ventilation. And that may require them to be bagged up. It may require a superglottic airway, or in some occasions, you may end up even intubating these patients if it's unclear exactly what's going on. But you do need to manage the ABs and the Cs before you move on to other things. So get a blood pressure, check the saturations, make sure that they're oxygenated, make sure that they've got some ventilation going on. And gaining IV access which may be tricky in some of these patients. If you've made an assessment that this is a toxidrome of opiates, then there is an antidote. So naloxone is the drug of choice and naloxone will work in these patients, but you have to use it carefully. So we make the decision that the patient's taken opiates and we're deciding to give naloxone. We've mentioned this idea that they might have a struggle with IV access. Now, over the last few years, especially, we've started to give drugs in what could be described as more novel ways. So I remember struggling for more minutes than I would have been more comfortable with trying to find a vein in a an opiate overdose to try and give them IV naloxone. I guess there's the idea you can stab something into the muscle, but there are other options as well, aren't there? There are. I mean, we can think about them, really. And um, people traditionally used IM. Um, IM naloxone, like all drugs given IM, is a bit hit and miss about how it's going to work. But the advantage is that it was thought that it would take longer to get out of the system. And that would avoid this idea that if somebody ran out the door, they'd still have some naloxone disappearing into their intravascular space and supporting them for a longer period of time. I'm not sure how safe that is. 
Intravenous naloxone is great. It works very quickly, but obviously it's going to turn over very rapidly. So it's not ideal. So we can obviously give it intramuscularly and we can give it intravenously, but there are other options for giving these medications as well, aren't there? There are. You can give these drugs IO. So I have in the past in critical situations put an intraosseous in and given intraosseous naloxone. But there's a few other things as well which have come around recently, which I think are quite interesting. People have given intranasal naloxone, but of late I've heard quite a lot of people and I've had a little bit of personal experience with giving nebulized naloxone. Obviously, the patient has to still be breathing. So it's in the intermediate group who aren't completely flat, who aren't complete and also aren't completely fine. But in that group who are just breathing enough that if you keep poking, them, they'll keep breathing. But if you stop poking, they'll stop breathing. Nebulized naloxone, two milligrams of nebulized naloxone seems to work really well, actually. So you grab a vial, you grab your normal salbutamol nebulizer. Instead of putting salbutamol in it, you empty the vial of naloxone in it and just give it in exactly the same way. Yeah, well, several vials, actually. So you need, a, you need a reasonable volume and about two milligrams that you can put in there. But again, you can titrate that to effect. So you put the nebulizer on and as they start waking up, once they're too awake, then you can take it off. Because we're not trying to completely wake this group of patients up. I think that's really dangerous to take somebody who's completely flat, suddenly wake them up and then then run off into the distance, or worse, to have some form of cardiovascular collapse. I think my approach to naloxone and my approach to opioid overdose now is much more gentle. It's small aliquots of ideally intravenous naloxone to get people to the point where they're just about awake, they are spontaneously breathing, they've got decent saturations, they've got decent ventilation, they're not hypercarbic, and keeping them there until the opiates wear off, whatever those opiates may be. So I think that's a really important take home message, isn't it? We're not trying to get this person to sit up and start having a chat with you about the rights and wrongs of taking opiates as a recreational drug. In fact, we'd like to keep them to a state where they're just snoozing gently in the corner, gently breathing for themselves, saturating well. And it's about titrating our doses of medicine, however we want to give it, to keep them in that comfortable position. So what I do is I give 100 microgram aliquots of naloxone IV until I get them to the point where I want them. And then if it looks as if they're going to need continuing naloxone, so I've given them a reasonable amount, the general calculation of working out how much they're going to need is take two thirds of the dose it required to wake them up. So two thirds of that dose, put it in infusion and that amount over an hour for the next few hours. And that's particularly relevant if you've got somebody who's taken a long acting opiate such as methadone. Methadone is a real worry for us, a massive worry for us patients who've taken methadone you suddenly wake them up put them cold turkey put them into withdrawal they run away those are the ones who'll be found dead under a bush later and you will have an unpleasant day in the coroner's court so it's important to know about the pharmacology of the medicine that they've taken or the drug that they've taken and i remember those pharmacology lectures at medical schools a few years ago wondering what is the point of learning all of this stuff about half-lives and stuff but this is where it becomes important obviously the longer the half-life the longer you've got to keep the naloxone infusion going to maintain that antagonism of the opiate receptor and that has to be part of our consideration when we're working about doses and what else we're going to do so we've got the patient we've got them comfortably sitting there they're going to have to go to another area Is that a normal acute medical unit where you work or is it more a high care area? Where do you think these patients should be cared for? I think it will depend on your local hospital and the quality of the wards and what they're prepared to take. But essentially, these patients need to be in a position where their ventilation can be observed. So they need to be monitored for things like their respiratory rate, 
not just their saturations, because you can put these guys on an oxygen mask and they will stop breathing for a long, long, long period of time before their saturations drop. So they need to go to an area where people understand how to monitor ventilation, respiratory rate, conscious level. Now that might be your acute medical unit in some hospitals. In many hospitals, it may well be somewhere like your HDU. And actually in my head, what we're talking about here really is a, a patient who's undergoing sedation. They've chosen to sedate themselves, but we need to monitor them in exactly the similar sort of way that we'd monitor a patient who's having deep sedation in our recess room until we get them awake enough. And so I, I suppose there's a place for nasal end tidal CO2 monitoring. That's something that we've done. We put the CO2 probe, plug it into the monitor, put the probe inside the oxygen mask. If you've got a specific one, that's great, but you can just do it with the ones that we normally use for endotracheal intubation and we can monitor their respiratory rate that way. That's quite a good way of doing it. So we've got a very neat idea now that we've got the patient set up probably on an infusion of a calculated dose of naloxone. We're monitoring them closely. We've got the end tidal CO2 trace. So we're not just depending on SATs. And remember that if you've got a patient on high flow oxygen, their SATs can stay at 100% for a long, long time whilst their CO2 gradually rises and their oxygen saturation will not start to fall until their CO2 and their respiratory effort is significantly obtunded. So just be wary of the high flow oxygen that you're giving. I think it's a good thing. I'm not against oxygen. I think generally I like having oxygen in my blood, but be aware that that can be part of the thing we need to think about. So we get them over this stage, Simon. We've treated their opiate overdose. Perhaps it's an older person. They did it by accident. So we can do things to try and check they can take their medication. We can think about why they're confused, what was happening with that, a bit more of a care of the elderly type thing. How do you approach those people who've come into you? And I'm sure you see plenty of them who just want to go out and do it again. It's a challenging group of patients who have a lot of needs, a lot of psychosocial needs. Their lives are usually not great. I think we do need to take one moment to think about whether or not that was a deliberate overdose, because even people who've taken what appears to be an accidental overdose of heroin, if you investigate that, a proportion of them have actually had an episode of deliberate self-harm. And you should treat that in exactly the same way as you would with any other episode of deliberate self-harm. For those who've taken recreational drugs and things have just gone a bit wrong, then there are services out there, and it'll depend where you are in the world. But in the UK, we have pretty good drug and alcohol services, and we can certainly put people in touch with them if they're not already known. And we have systems within our department where we can get um, people into contact with them fairly quickly. If they're homeless, again, it's not an uncommon association. We have homeless teams who can see the patients as well. But it is an opportunity to intervene if you can. It is a moment in those people's lives where they can think about, you know, things aren't going so well here. And they may be receptive to some of the services which are available in the UK. Making sure we offer those services is really important. But as clinicians, we've got to remember that people who have capacity and are able to choose will sometimes make choices that we don't necessarily agree with. We want to make it as easy as they can to make the right choices. But as clinicians, I don't think we can always blame ourselves if that patient comes in in two days time having done exactly the same again. We're dealing with people who can make decisions and can make choices. There are just times I think sometimes where we beat ourselves up because we haven't been able to change in a 24 hour period, years and years of what we describe as different behavior that we don't recognize as necessarily being good for the patient. So don't be too hard on yourself if 48 hours later this patient comes back. You've not necessarily done anything wrong. You just have to give them the opportunity to make the change if that's what they want to do. So we thought a little bit about how we recognise the opiate overdose. We've talked about how we're going to treat that with the naloxone. But there's other stuff that can go on with these patients as well, isn't there? There can be other conditions that we need to keep an eye out for. 
Yes. So they're a vulnerable population. So they may have many other health needs. Again, it's an opportunity to address those. But specifically with regard to the opiate overdose, I'm always aware that this group of patients may have been obtunded for quite a long period of time. They've often been lay on the floor for a long period of time in abnormal positions. And I've certainly seen compartment syndromes and episodes of rhabdomyolysis, which is potentially going to kill them in the next 24, 48 hours, occur as a result of this. So if you see somebody who's clearly been obtunded and laying a poor position for a long period of time, just think about that. Make sure that this person isn't at risk of compartment syndrome or any other pressure area care issue and potential for rhabdomyolysis. So that's an important thing to think about. I guess you can send a CK to see if they've got a rise from that, from muscle destruction. Compartment syndrome is going to be tricky to spot in the patient who's relatively sedated because I'm supposing they're not going to be complaining too much of pain. So have to really look carefully for that. I think you do. And it's something you'd have to look at again and again and again and also have reasonable discharge planning for. We always want to be up to date on St. Emelins. Is there anything else that's been coming online in the last couple of years that we need to think about when it comes to these patients? Well, I think the one that interests me is when these people first come in. So particularly the patient who's been really unwell. So they've been obtunded for a long period of time. They've been probably hypercapnic for a period of time. They're acidotic with a significant respiratory acidosis, we think. And they come in, they've been bagged by the paramedics, they come in, they've had some oxygen. So the SATs are often not that bad, but they clearly, clearly had a significant overdose. Now, there is really case report stuff in the literature that if you reverse a patient who is very hypercapnic, who is very acidotic, you can run into problems. Now, whether you see things like flash pulmonary edemas, you see dysrhythmias, because you're suddenly revealing what's going on in these people by taking out all of the opiate drive. And there is a question about whether or not you should try and ventilate these people to a more normal CO2 and a, therefore a more normal pH before you give them the naloxone. I think that's quite controversial because then you're exposing people to a period of often non-invasive ventilation in order to achieve that. And it's actually quite difficult to do. But that is a bit controversial. I don't know what you think about that. At first thought, it seems to make some sense, doesn't it? We're always wary of an acidotic environment in the body. It seems that having an acidosis doesn't make you respond in as predictable a way to medications or other things that we want to do. And so a period of bag valve mask ventilation just to get some of that CO2 blown off, get the patient awake. And of course, actually, it may turn out that that reveals some other cause of their reduced level of consciousness. So I guess we're trying to find a way to get the patient into a situation where we can be even better at assessing what's wrong with them. I agree. I I think it's a difficult one. I don't, I don't, I'm not particularly consistent in this area, but there are a group of patients who I will ventilate for a period of time to make sure that I'm happy that they're in a position where I can reverse them. But in the back of my mind, I always know that, you know, non-invasive ventilation with a bag valve mask, you risk filling up the stomach, you risk aspiration. So this is a risk benefit thing. It's a difficult decision to make. And I think the other controversial one, or not, not so much the controversial one, the other reason why I've taken a much more gentle approach to the reversal of opiate patients is, is the number of cases over the years. And I'm sure you'll recognize this scenario. I'll, I'll give you an example. It's, it's, it's not exactly hypothetical, but I'll change the details. A lady came in, she'd clearly taken an overdose and we saw her and we'd made the diagnosis that this was probably an opiate toxidrome. She was bradypneic. She had pinpoint pupils. She was pretty much unresponsive. And this was in the days where people used to give large quantities of naloxone. So they gave a massive dose of IM naloxone, 1200 micrograms. They gave 1200 micrograms of of IV naloxone at the same time. That took out all the opiates and revealed 
the cocaine and tricyclic concomitant overdose underneath. So we'd taken this lady who was opiate user. We'd taken out all of that. We'd made a cold turkey. We'd, we'd made it in withdrawal and revealed a huge number of stimulants and really toxic tricyclic drugs. And that was one of the most stormy, difficult times I've ever had in the research room trying to manage that patient. Organizing, it was a time before anesthetics or before I was doing anesthetics, trying to manage the critical care of that patient in extremely difficult circumstances. And arguably, it was our fault for doing it in such a precipitous manner. And those cases are really, you know, they really change how you think about this. And my subsequent approach, my current approach, which is much more gentle, seems to work much more safely, much better and in a much more controlled environment. So taking that on board and just thinking a little bit about that last case and summing up what we've talked about, what we're trying to do is identify the patient who's taken the opiate overdose using that toxidrome that we've described. We want to then gently take them to a state whereby they're able to self-ventilate well enough to blow off enough CO2 and to maintain their oxygen saturation so that we've got a balance and they're not becoming too acidotic. And then we want to think a little bit about why they might have had too much opiates in the system. Is there a worry about them having other things? And are there other conditions that could be going along with this, a compartment syndrome or rhabdomyolysis from a prolonged lie on the floor or something else like that? But this is all much more gentle than perhaps we would do a decade ago, taking it slow and steady. And we can use more advanced monitoring that we have now in the recess room, entitled CO2 monitoring, maybe nasal, maybe using a cannula into a mask, just to gently control how we look after this patient, thinking a little bit as if it's a patient who's given themselves procedural sedation and how we would manage that patient. Well, Simon, I think that's a really great run through of this seemingly simple topic and we've managed to make it a little bit more complicated and then simple again. It's a bit of the St. Emlyn's way. I hope that people have managed to take something away from that. We'll obviously have a blog post to accompany this and we'll point you in the direction of some other resources and other evidence that backs up some of the things that we've been talking about. And Simon, I'm hoping you'll be happy to share the guideline you've been writing for your local hospital in our ever all-caring, all-sharing way. I hope you've enjoyed the opiates overdose. No, that's not hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Keep that in. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening. It's an exciting time ahead. I hope very much you've taken something away about opiate overdose and the patients and how we can look after them better in the emergency department. We'll be back with you very soon on the St. Emlyn's podcast. Keep an eye out on the blog site. There's some great articles coming out there too. And we'll be back with you soon. Take care, everybody. 